Uh, good afternoon. I'd uh, like to call to order this hearing of the uh, subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, this afternoon, our subcommittee is uh, holding its first hearing in the 114th Congress. So I'm pleased to be chairing the subcommittee along with my good friend, Senator Tom Udall, who is the subcommittee's ranking member. Uh, Senator Udall, I look forward to continuing to work with you in a very uh, productive way as we have done in the past. So th thank you. Uh, the subcommittee is meeting today to evaluate the resource management and performance of the international programs under our jurisdiction. I believe Congress needs to ensure that these programs focus on uh, U.S. priorities, that they evaluate the effectiveness of all the programs, uh, that, that uh, Congress needs to support programs that are getting real results, and eliminate programs that are not working. Uh, in preparation for a potential State Department reauthorization, I've asked all of our witnesses today to identify ways to achieve efficiencies and savings as well as opportunities to more effectively advance U.S. priorities around the world. Uh, the American people, I believe, are very generous. Individuals, groups, and committees, and communities across the country uh, give their time and precious resources to help others, both uh, to people here and people around the world. There's a long history of people across this nation generously supporting victims of international disasters, uh, famines, diseases, and wars. Uh, with our national debt, however, at around $18 trillion, I think it's irresponsible to borrow more money to fund initiatives that are failing to prove results um, or provide real value uh, for taxpayers. The government uh, must be a good steward of U.S. taxpayer dollars. Every government branch and agency needs to be carefully evaluated and streamlined to eliminate duplicative and wasteful spending. Each program needs to be carefully analyzed to ensure it's being designed and implemented in the most effective and efficient manner. And we must also be focused on whether participation at multilateral institutions is actually advancing American values, American ideals, American standards. So there's a lot of area to cover here today, including the greatly needed reforms at the United Nations, promoting economic opportunities for U.S. businesses around the world, implementing real budgetary discipline at uh, multilateral uh, institutions, and eliminating duplication and wasteful spending. Uh, these are all important issues. I look forward to hearing the testimony of our witnesses and we'll now turn to our ranking member, Senator Udall, to offer his opening remarks. Thank, thank you uh, very much, Chairman Barrasso. And, and as you've said, we've had a good working relationship and look forward to doing the same on this uh, subcommittee. Our subcommittee's jurisdiction covers a lot of ground. Some would say from the ocean floor out to space. The Bureau of Oceans and International Environment, Environmental and Scientific Affairs, I think, would agree on that. Their work, ranging from environmental issues such as climate change to emerging issues such as space, is crucial to our foreign policy. In addition, Congress has a vital interest in international institutions. The United Nations and other international institutions impact how we interact with the world and how the world views the United States. And uh, also, I think it's important to note that, that this is an area where we share burdens a lot. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit in questions about how the GAO has looked at the idea of, of uh, the UN and, and doing things through other countries and the United States doing things alone. And I think it's an interesting perspective there. So I'm pleased that we have two great panels here today to examine ongoing efforts to strengthen the United Nations and also discuss U.S. support for other key, issue, other key issues that are uh, before this panel, such as peacekeeping and humanitarian activities, economic diplomacy, 
and the negotiations for a new climate change agreement that will take place in Paris this December. I recognize that the United Nations is a highly complex and decentralized organization. Potential reforms may be slow, but I believe it is also important to highlight the position that this administration has taken to engage the United Nations on many fronts and to elevate the status of the U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations to a cabinet-level position that reports directly to the President. I know that the President has directed the State Department to see how we can evaluate and improve U.N. system transparency and effectiveness. I will be happy to hear more about our progress and challenges in those areas from Assistant Secretary Crocker. I'm also looking forward to a discussion of the role the Economic Bureau plays. And uh, Chairman Barrasso mentioned that. This, this Bureau in helping businesses and workers succeed in a global economy. Senator Barrasso and I, I think, would agree there are many areas, particularly in energy and natural gas, where the United States can excel if businesses are given the opportunity to export overseas. In addition, I'd like to know how the Economic Bureau is working to support normalization efforts with Cuba and how Congress can support these efforts further. And finally, I'm hoping our panelists can provide us with an overview of ongoing international climate negotiations and perhaps give us a sense of the steps we need to take to make sure that a successful agreement is reached. So with that, Chairman Barrasso, I've finished with my opening. I'd turn it back to you. Well, thank you very much, Senator Udall. At this point, I'd like to welcome all of our witnesses. I know you have all very busy schedules, important responsibilities. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, joining us this afternoon on the first panel is Assistant Secretary of State Sheba Crocker of the Bureau of International Organization Affairs, uh, also Ambassador uh, Isabel Coleman, U.S. Representative to the United Nations for Management and Reform. Uh, Acting Assistant Secretary Judith Garber, uh, Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, and uh, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary Kurt Tong, who is the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. Uh, Senator Udall, since you had mentioned uh, uh, Secretary uh, Crocker, perhaps we could uh, start with you. I would say that uh, your full statement will be entered into the record, and um, I would ask you to summarize it in about five minutes in order for members to have an opportunity to ask questions. Secretary Crocker. Uh, Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall, it is my pleasure to appear before you today to discuss U.S. actions to promote efficiency and effectiveness across the United Nations and other international organizations. As Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, it is my job to ensure that U.S. multilateral priorities are advanced across the entire multilateral system, including at the United Nations and several dozen other international organizations. That effort spans seven U.S. multilateral missions, including our mission to the United Nations in New York, and requ requires collaboration with other federal agencies that depend on international organizations to help advance their priorities. The organizations we work with are diverse, from distributing emergency food assistance through the World Food Program to ensuring global aviation safety standards through the International Civil Aviation Organization. But the core U.S. objectives at each of these organizations are the same to advance our national interests, to promote American values, and to advocate for the efficient and effective use of American taxpayer resources. I think it is important to recognize how much we ask of the UN and other international organizations. Consider the recent headlines. UN agencies are leading the effort to respond to the devastation in Nepal. 
They are addressing humanitarian emergencies in Yemen, Iraq, South Sudan, the Central African Republic, and in and around Syria. We rely on the World Health Organization to address the impact of Ebola in West Africa and to eliminate polio and other diseases once and for all. In many cases, UN political missions are the international community's last remaining eyes and ears on the ground in areas experiencing significant insecurity or political instability. In 16 missions around the world, nearly 130,000 UN peacekeepers are contributing to stability and promoting peace and reconciliation. And these are just some of the countless examples where US interests are advanced through coordination at the United Nations and across many interna other international organizations. The United States simply cannot and should not address such global challenges alone. Working through the multilateral system enables us to mobilize global action and ensure that the financial burdens of that action are broadly shared. Still, there is no denying that the UN and other international organizations have not always proven to be effective stewards of US taxpayer resources. For too long, the UN operated without the necessary commitment to transparency, accountability, and results. And so the United States and numerous partner countries have pressed the UN system to embrace modern management and budgeting practices. Since becoming Assistant Secretary in September of 2014, I have prioritized management and budget reform issues, and I have used my position and voice as frequently as possible to push for progress. The results of this kind of sustained engagement are clear. Within the past month alone, we've reached agreement to no growth budgets at both the International Labor Organization and the Food and Agriculture Organization. At over half of the more than 45 organizations we fund through the contributions to international organizations account, we are projecting no increases in assessments for fiscal year 2016. Just two weeks ago, I co-chaired a meeting in Geneva of the top donors to the UN system, where we agreed to work together to look at UN performance management practices and to increase scrutiny of how UN agencies are handling their own audits and ethics rules, including protection of whistleblowers. We're seeing gradual progress on needed reforms. Two organizations that pre previously did not provide access to audit reports, the International Maritime Organization and the International Telecommunications Union, have begun providing access. At the UN, we gained agreement in December to permanent public access to audit and evaluation reports. The Organization of American States and the World Health Organization have corrected shortcomings in their whistleblower policies over the past year. Last month, I traveled to a UNICEF coordination facility in Copenhagen, where UNICEF is working with partners to create economies of scale to drive down the price of immunization and other, and other crucial goods. That effort will not only save the UN tens of millions of dollars a year, but it will bring untold benefits to communities around the world. We are trying to replicate these kinds of efforts across the multilateral system. We remain determined in our efforts to improve accountability and transparency measures in peacekeeping operations. We initiated a comprehensive review of civilian staff in missions, which resulted in significant reductions in cost savings. We are holding troop-contributing countries accountable through financial penalties if they deploy to UN peace operations with missing or non-functioning equipment. And we work with our partners at the United Nations to initiate a firm prohibition on payments to troops sent home for misconduct, including for sexual exploitation and abuse. These examples of reforms and best practices are promising, but we remain frustrated by sluggish progress. 
Some organizations continue to struggle to provide whistleblower protections, and the formulas that determine how much funding each member state contributes to the UN remain woefully outdated. There is certainly more work to be done across the board. So I am grateful to this subcommittee for holding today's hearing and for your continued interest in our work at the United Nations. The investments we make in the multilateral arena today are more important than ever to advancing U.S. interests, and Congress, and especially members of this subcommittee, play a critical role in helping to ensure taxpayer resources are used efficiently at multilateral institutions to help advance U.S. objectives. I welcome the opportunity to discuss these issues with you and your staff at any time, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Well, thank, th you. thank you very much, Secretary Crocker. Next, we'll hear from Ambassador Coleman. Thank you, Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall, and distinguished members of the committee for inviting me to testify on our efforts to make the United Nations a more efficient and effective institution. I've been in my role as U.S. Ambassador for U.N. Management and Reform for nearly five months now and have had numerous opportunities to see firsthand how the work of the UN is both indispensable and imperfect. I recently returned from visiting the, UN, the UN's largest peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country where a decade-long war, starting in the mid-1990s, claimed some five million lives. Today, the UN plays a critical role in contributing to the maintenance of a fragile peace in Congo. I visited bases in North and South Kivu from which UN peacekeepers patrol the surrounding areas, and, and assist in disarming militias. I toured a UN camp where child soldiers are being demobilized and reintegrated into their communities. My trip to the DRC provided me with a powerful demonstration of the UN at its best, how it can help prevent conflict, keep the peace, go where nobody else will go, to care for the neediest of the world, and promote universal values that Americans hold dear. However, I also saw an organization struggling to do critical work in more effective ways. There is ample room for improvement, from how troops are trained and equipped to how complicated missions staff up and draw down. As the ambassador for UN management and reform, my job is to ensure that US taxpayer dollars are spent wisely. And I recognize that opportunities and challenges abound in making the UN a more efficient, transparent, and accountable organization. As the largest financial contributor to the United Nations, we put budget discipline at the forefront of our efforts to ensure that the UN is constantly seeking ways to do more with less. Last December, we kept the increase in US assessments below 2% compared to 4% or higher in biennia past, even in the face of new commitments, such as responding to the Ebola crisis. We further set a budget planning figure for the next biennium that is 1.6% lower than the current level. This followed a significant reduction in the staffing level during the previous budget period, the first such action in almost 20 years. Equally as important as controlling the top line is ensuring fairness in how much we are required to pay to the United Nations. This means first and foremost protecting the 22% ceiling on the regular budget, as that ceiling not only lowers our rate on the regular budget, but also our starting point on the far larger peacekeeping budget. Nevertheless, we are committed to paying our UN dues on time and in full, and we will be working hard this fall during the scales of assessment negotiations to ensure that all countries pay their fair share. Additionally, we continue to promote long-term structural savings in UN budgets through innovation, including through new IT systems that will enable the UN to modernize its approach to functions such as procurement, human resources, finance, and supply chain management. A recent change we secured in procurement methodology, for example, will enable the UN to get better value on the more than $700 million worth of annual air contracts that it has. 
and we're pleased to note that an American company was one of the first to win a contract under the new rules. We've pushed these reforms as an important means of achieving substantial UN headcount reductions and cost savings from the streamlining of business processes. We've also worked hard to ensure that UN staff costs are more in line with the US federal government because the UN uses the US government's pay scale as a basis of comparison. To that end, we've achieved freezes in UN pay and benefits, a powerful lever for budget control since staff costs comprise more than 70% of the UN's budget. We've also focused on ways to make peacekeeping operations more effective, such as promoting the global field support strategy a move to shared services for peacekeeping missions that has led to at least $250 million in savings. As a result of this and other initiatives, the cost per UN uniform peacekeeper has been reduced by 17% since 2008, when adjusted for inflation. We continually keep UN missions under review to ensure they are right-sized and seize the opportunity to draw down when appropriate, as will occur this year in peacekeeping missions in Cote d'Ivoire, Haiti, Liberia, and the UN's emergency response to Ebola, among other emissions. We also pressed the UN to be more transparent and accountable. We achieved a significant increase in transparency in December by making permanent the public disclosure of UN audit and inspection reports of the various programs so that all taxpayers can see how their money is spent. We continue to seek to strengthen the Inspector General of the UN by providing the resources and personnel needed to effectively fulfill its oversight role in headquarters and in the field. However, we recognize that our efforts at reform will be diminished unless we ensure the UN's integrity. Too often, incidents of fraud, abuse, and mismanagement undermine the organization's good work, hurting the very people the UN is supposed to be protecting. We continue to push the UN to address misconduct issues, especially sexual exploitation and abuse. We supported the establishment of an office to improve the evaluation of the performance and readiness of peacekeeping units in the field. And we also continue to work with the UN to strengthen its whistleblower protection policies. Reform can succeed at the UN even though the pace is frustratingly slow. But we owe it to US taxpayers and to the billions of people who depend, many for their lives, on crucial services of the UN to push for change. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify today and I welcome any questions you might have. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Coleman. We appreciate your testimony. And we'll now move to Acting Assistant Secretary Garber. Good afternoon, Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall. Thank you for the opportunity to testify on the programs and policies of the Bureau of Oceans, International, Environmental, and Scientific Affairs of the State Department. It's truly my honor to highlight a few of OES's major program priorities today. Secretary Kerry has made ocean conservation an imperative of US foreign policy. The June 2014 Our Ocean Conference already is having concrete results to improve sustainable fisheries, to reduce marine pollution, and to better monitor ocean acidification. We've launched an ocean action plan with significant public engagement around the world, including working to bring the Port State Measures Agreement into force. I would like to thank the Senate for its support of these efforts. This agreement will recoup some of the billions of dollars lost each year to illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. In another example of our work, on April 24th, the United States assumed the chairmanship of the Arctic Council and introduced an ambitious and balanced program focusing on three crucial areas. Improving economic and living conditions for Arctic communities, Arctic Ocean safety, security, and stewardship, and addressing the impacts of climate change. In the months ahead, OES will work with Arctic stakeholders to improve community sanitation and public health, to better prepare those responsible for search and rescue challenges in the Arctic, and to reduce contaminants in the Arctic, including black carbon. 
Although OES does not lead U.S. negotiations on climate change, we take critical steps to spur a global all-hands-on-deck effort. For example, we are working closely with the leadership of the Office of the Special Envoy for Climate Change to reduce climate pollutants such as methane, black carbon, and hydrofluorocarbons through the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. The CCAC is a voluntary initiative with dozens of countries and other stakeholder groups participating that enjoys bipartisan support in Congress. Combating wildlife trafficking is a whole-of-government effort in which OES coordinates among federal agencies and pushes for stronger international commitment and collaboration. For example, we are seeking to leverage trade agreements, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to press countries which account for a sizable portion of the demand for illegal wildlife to live up to their international commitments. Science and technology are key drivers of the global economy, making them vital tools in diplomacy. S&T engagement creates partnerships with countries to tackle shared challenges, such as energy security, food security, global health, climate change, and water scarcity. OES, with a strong complement of PhD scientists and subject matter experts, work to ensure that objective scientific data informs public policy decision making. The joint committee meetings, such as the one we will be having later this week with Germany, and science dialogues that OES hosts with other countries create platforms to promote innovation and advance policy priorities such as combating antibiotic-resistant bacteria and data access for U.S. scientists. OES helps advance the U.S. global health mission. The Ebola epidemic is a striking example of the impact that health threats have on our own security and of the critical importance of sustainable health systems overseas. Looking to the future, we are working to ensure the continued commitment of international resources for health system build back in the affected Ebola countries, leaving them stronger and more resilient than they were before the epidemic. In addressing global health, we work with the Department of Health and Human Services, USAID, and other U.S. agencies to facilitate U.S. policies to counter international bioterrorism and infectious disease, provide surveillance and response, and improve health in post-conflict situations. The last example I'd like to highlight is space. OES furthers the goals of national space policy by helping to build an international policy framework that supports the peaceful exploration and utilization of outer space by both public institutions and new private ventures. A number of U.S. companies have recently announced plans for unprecedented commercial activities in outer space. A safe, transparent, and accountable approach is critical in providing commercial space companies and investors a degree of certainty, enabling them to make investments and spur innovation. By addressing these many complex challenges, OES seeks to leave a healthier planet for generations to come. We are supported in these efforts by our foot soldiers, some 300 environment, science, technology, and health officers at our embassies overseas. Together, we promote American values, foster an entrepreneurial spirit, and build relationships. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to responding to any questions you may have. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Secretary Garber. Now we'll turn. Uh, to uh, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary Tong. Mr. Secretary. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Ranking Member Udall. Let me add my thanks for this opportunity to appear today to discuss how the State Department's Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs works to keep Americans safe and prosperous. In my 25 years with the Department of State, serving mostly in the dynamic economies of East Asia, I have seen firsthand how economic ties can strengthen and transform our diplomatic and security relationships with other nations. I have also seen how vital successful economic diplomacy is to both U.S. leadership abroad and to American prosperity here at home. Although I speak for my bureau today, we work as a global team. Functional and regional bureaus in the State Department 
working seamlessly with our dedicated economic policy personnel at over 270 U.S. posts overseas, all of that in concert with colleagues serving in other economic policy agencies here in Washington. We have three strategic priorities. First, we use economic diplomacy to benefit the lives and livelihoods of Americans, whether it is expanding U.S. exports overseas, attracting new job-creating investment to our shores, protecting U.S. innovations and intellectual property rights, crafting and implementing sanctions, promoting entrepreneurship, or helping U.S. air carriers expand their rights. Every day we fight for the interests of American businesses, workers, farmers, travelers, consumers, and citizens. Through technology, we can now reach a broader array of U.S. stakeholders, much more efficiently than before. For instance, via our direct line program, which is a big plus in responding quickly to emerging issues and commercial opportunities. Our second priority is to negotiate agreements that foster a more open, inclusive, and rules-based economic environment around the world. The scope of these agreements extends well beyond trade to include investment, transportation, telecommunications, agriculture, intellectual property, and it is State Department economic officers in the field who help ensure that these agreements are implemented. Third, we use economic diplomacy as a tool to advance broader policy objectives by supporting, for example, sustainable development and good governance in partner countries and by applying tough, targeted sanctions where necessary. All of these efforts, of course, are taking place in an increasingly complex international policy environment. The good news here is that the global middle class is expanding worldwide and expanding rapidly, creating new opportunities to benefit America. Also, it is good news that more and more nations are concentrating wholeheartedly on being more competitive based on market principles, and more and more regions around the world are cooperating to promote mutually beneficial growth. However, as more nations have a voice in shaping global economic policy, the United States itself must be both more aggressive and more sophisticated in shaping what is going on. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, in my remaining time, I'd like to mention how we are tackling new challenges with new tools. The State Department's key asset, of course, is its people. But our resources in, in that regard are limited. So it makes sense that we are concentrating on training, improved communications, and making sure that our operations are informed by smart strategies. The recently issued Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, or QDDR, has specific suggestions for how we can further upgrade our work on economic diplomacy by improving coordination between regional and functional bureaus at the State Department, and by assuring that our most talented officers lead our economic teams in key embassies overseas. The QDDR also calls for more and enhanced training, including distance learning, as well as long-term detail assignments to give our officers firsthand experience working at U.S. companies and in other parts of government. We are also developing new tools to make our diplomacy more agile and data-driven, including new IT platforms to collaborate across the globe and an organization-wide push to better use and share information. The QDDR calls for investing in an agile, skilled, and diverse workforce ready to lead, and I could not agree more. So, Mr. Chairman, I think you'll agree that it's an extraordinarily active period for economic diplomacy. Mr. Ranking Member, I thank you for using the term economic diplomacy. 
And so I welcome your questions on these and other issues going forward, and thank you again for the opportunity to testify. Uh, thank you very much, Secretary Cronin. We have a couple of uh, questions, and I'd like to start with Ambassador Coleman. The, uh, the Office of Management and Budget has previously provided Congress with a list of uh, total U.S. contributions to the United Nations from the State Department as well as 18 other <clears throat> U.S. departments and agencies. Uh, the last report from OMB explained that the U.S. contributed, I think, $7.92 billion uh, in fiscal year 2010. Um, I mean, many of us on this committee believe that the American people deserve to know exactly how much U.S. taxpayer dollar is, uh, is going to the United Nations and how it's being spent. Do, do you know the total annual U.S. contribution to the United Nations from all agencies, including in-kind contributions? Thank you, Senator, for that question. It is, um, there's not a quick, easy answer to that question uh, because, as you said, there are many different sources of contributions to the UN. Uh, there's our assessed contribution, there are voluntary contributions, and in-kind contributions. So uh, in terms of uh, what we are contributing across all of it, I don't have a quick and easy answer for that. Um, but um, what I can tell you is, you know, looking very closely at the assessed contribution, um, we do know that uh, we're paying approximately $2.5 um, uh, on the regular budget and, uh, and more than uh, $3 billion on the peacekeeping budget. But I think um, Assistant Secretary Crocker might be able to answer across the entire UN system uh, uh, more clearly than I can on that point. Well, well the, reason, the reason I ask, and I didn't expect you to give me the, the, the complete number, because you're right, it is a complicated system. But during Ambassador Powers' confirmation process, I asked her if she supported Congress and the American people receiving an annual report from OMB uh, of total U.S. contributions to, to the U.N., and, and she said yes. So the, I, the question is, do you, do you support Congress and the American people receiving a report uh, from OMB on the total U.S. contributions provided to the United Nations each year? Senator, I do support that, and what I really support is transparency. I think that uh, transparency is critically important, and I think American taxpayers deserve transparency on important budgetary issues, such as how much we are contributing to the UN system. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and, and then Secretary Crocker, uh, following up with, uh, with Ambassador Coleman's comments, uh, do, you, do you also uh, agree that the American people deserve in Congress a report from OMB on the total U.S. contributions? Thank you, Chairman. I do agree um, very much that uh, that the American taxpayer should have full transparency, as Ambassador Coleman indicated, and, and full visibility into the full amount of contributions, both assessed and voluntary, that go to the entire UN um, and, and broader international system every year. And in fact, our Bureau um, and other parts of the Department are working closely with OMB and other federal agencies to try to ensure that we um, have a more rigorous way to assess what all of those contributions look like. I, I can tell you that the last year for which we have from the United Nations a full estimate of all of their costs, their full budget across the full range of UN um, agencies and institutions was in 2013, and that number was about $44 billion. And in 2013, that same year, we we reported to you that the full amount of U.S. contributions, again, both assessed and voluntary contributions, was about $6.6 .6 billion of that $44 billion total. Um, but as I said, we are working now to try to ensure that, um, that we can more effectively collect that kind of information and report to you and more broadly to the American people. Well, th thank you. That's very help helpful. Uh, Ambassador Coleman, uh, since 1994, uh, there have been a 25 percent cap on the United States assessment to uh, the UN peacekeeping budget. 
Uh, despite the law, the U.S. contribution has risen to over 28 percent uh, for U.N. peacekeeping budget fiscal year 2016 budget request from the administration. Uh, the administration requested funding to meet the U.N.'s 28.36 percent assessment, despite the fact that we have this 25 percent cap authorized by Congress in back in the 1990s. Do you, do you know why the administration hasn't been able to abide by the, the cap on uh, UN peacekeeping? Thank you, Senator, for that question. The scales of assessment, the rate that every country pays um, to the UN is uh, negotiated every three years. And this is one of those years for scales of assessment to be reevaluated. Part of my job as ambassador for UN management and reform is to lead those negotiations in the fifth committee. And what I can assure you is that I will be working extremely hard to make sure that countries pay their fair share. Um, the difference between uh, the um, cap that you refer to and the rate that we are assessed um, has uh, been covered in many years. And I think it's extremely important that we're able to pay our assessed dues to the UN in full. As the ambassador for management and reform, what I can tell you is that countries uh, who share our values for budget discipline and reform at the UN look to the United States to lead. And we have been very active leading the reform agenda, particularly on the peacekeeping side of the House, where we have implemented a number of measures to ensure um, uh, performance and budget discipline on the large peacekeeping budget. And so I do think it is extremely important that we're able to keep our seat at the table and, and pay our assessed rate in full. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Um, Secretary Crocker, if I could, uh, one, I want to talk about whistleblower protections. Um, April of this year, nine whistleblowers from UN organizations sent a letter to the UN Secretary General asserting that UN whistleblower policies failed to protect uh, them from retaliation, and I have a copy of a letter that I'm going to ask to be submitted uh, for the record. Uh, they wrote, uh, without objection, submitted, with, they wrote, put simply, the UN system of justice fails whistleblowers, and most of us have been forced to leave the UN to save our livelihoods, our health, and our reputations. They also wrote, without proper whistleblower protections, wrongdoing at the United Nations, be it sexual exploitation, abuse of power, fraud, or corruption, will not be reported and will continue to go unchecked. Could, could you share with us what steps the United States is taking to address the failings of the United Nations and other multilateral institutions from protecting whistleblowers from the kind of retaliation that has been addressed in this letter? Thank you, Chairman Barrasso, um, for that question. And, um, and I'm glad you raised it, because this is one of the priority issues uh, in terms of management reform questions that the United States pushes, uh, both at the United Nations in New York uh, and more broadly across the UN system. Um, it is a high priority issue for us. Um, we feel very strongly, uh, as does this Congress appropriately, that whistleblowers should receive the right kinds of protections across the UN system from retaliation. And we consistently raise this issue in all of our conversations with UN leadership. That having been said, uh, some UN agencies uh, and, and the UN itself have struggled to provide the appropriate kinds of whistleblower protections. And so we are in constant communication with them about where we see 
um, where we think those standards should be um, and what we think they need to do to change their policies and practices. Um, and we have appreciated the close coordination that we have had with this committee uh, and your staffs on this question. We have seen some improvements. Uh, the UN Ethics Office at this moment is reviewing its own whistleblower policies in anticipation, uh, in anticipation of issuing revised policies on whistleblower protection for the UN, but we have seen some um, some real improvements at some of the other UN agencies that we participate in. Um, and for example, this year, as I mentioned in my testimony at the Organization of American States and the World Health Organization, we've seen some real efforts to correct shortcomings that we had seen at those two agencies previously on whistleblower protections. But we are required um, by law every year to look very closely at this question across the full range of UN agencies, and we take that responsibility very seriously. We engage our various multilateral missions around the world who engage directly directly with the UN entities um, to ensure that their policies and practices are up to speed, but also importantly to ensure that it's not only what's on paper, but that they are being effectively enforced. Uh, thank you so very much. My time's expired. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Barrasso. Assistant um, Secretary Crocker, in addition to their ongoing work in uh, Syria, South Sudan, and Central African Republic, the UN is also working to reach hundreds of thousands of civilians who have been displaced this year by violence in Iraq. Given the current strains on the UN humanitarian system caused by these crises, can you describe how the U.S. is working to support them in their work, and what more can, can we do to ensure a robust global response in these emergency situations? Well, thank you very much, um, Senator, for that question. Um, and, and of course, the UN's efforts across the humanitarian system and, and in addressing the global humanitarian emergencies that we face include those that you just listed, and the list goes on and on, including now the UN leading the response efforts in Nepal in response to the devastating earthquake. So I think it's very important, um, as you highlight, to note how many serious humanitarian crises we, um, as a global community, are facing around the world right now and how much we are relying on the UN system to help us address those crises. And that system is somewhat under strain, and we've seen that um, in the, over the past year. For example, when WFP, for a short period of time, had to, um, to reduce some of what it was able to provide to the refugees in and around Syria because it simply didn't have the money. So one thing that we have been focused on, in addition to the extremely generous U.S. taxpayer support for that humanitarian system, has been ensuring that we expand the base of countries that contribute to the humanitarian system. So it's not always the same list of countries that we're going to, but we're actually in serious conversations around the world with other countries that we think um, it, it's high time for them to be also contributing um, in the same way that we do in a sustained manner to help, uh, to help ensure that this humanitarian system is able to respond across the board. We also focus on ensuring the effectiveness and efficiency of that system. So we work very closely with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in New York, and we work to ensure that the agencies are well-placed and resourced to respond um, wherever these emergencies crop up. So they were already under strain before the emergency in Nepal, but still we have WFP, UNICEF, and WHO out in full force in Nepal to try to help address the emergency there. It's very important to the United States and all of our like-minded countries around the world that we continue to find ways to ensure both that these um, humanitarian agencies have the resources they need, but also that they are operating as effectively as they need to, to really get at these problems. Thank you very much for that answer. Uh, Assistant Secretary Garber, uh, the uh, QD, QDDR rightly elevates climate change as a strategic priority for the State Department. 
And for years now, the Department of Defense has regarded climate change as a threat multiplier, a factor that will exacerbate conflict, resource scarcity, mass migration, and humanitarian crises, all of which can impact U.S. national security. How does ODES working to elevate the growing work how does ODES working to elevate the growing nexus between climate change and security, and how does this inform the State Department's broader diplomatic efforts? What do you see as the near-term security threats arising from climate change? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. I think, as you point out, there is growing international recognition of the important relationship between climate change, fragility, and conflict. Climate change stresses our economic, political, social systems, and where institutions and governments are weak and unable to manage the stress, the risk of stability clearly increases. The OES is, OES is working both within the department as well as with our international partners to better understand this dynamic and how to integrate climate security considerations into our work. For example, at the recent G7 foreign minister's statement, in, on April 15th, highlighted the needs for countries to get their own houses in order on the issue and to work together with interested partners to factor climate fragility considerations into our foreign policy making. Thank you. Assistant Secretary Tong, how is your bureau working to advance the President's efforts to normalize relations with Cuba? Specifically, how can your bureau help American businesses start the process to engage in Cuba and with the Cuban people? Would you agree that increased access to telecoms and the internet will be an important part of this effort to engage Cuba. Uh, Senator, thank you for that question. And of course, the uh, historic opening in our uh, <coughs> new conversation with Cuba is aimed at uh, resulting in a Cuba which is democratic, prosperous, and stable. Let me highlight three activities uh, that my bureau is, is actively engaged in. The first is in making sure that our businesses understand the full range of U.S. law as it still currently applies. Uh, the the uh, sanctions which are still in place, the embargo which is still in place, and, and what they can and cannot do legally. And that's actually quite rather complex. And, and uh, a portion of my bureau is, is involved in sanctions policy and, and helps in explaining that to U.S. business. On the, on the more proactive side of the ledger, there are two areas I'd like to highlight. And the, you, you mentioned one of them, which is telecommunications. Uh, uh, Ambassador um, Danny Sepulveda recently led a team to Cuba, which is the first step in what will be a rather complex negotiation with Cuban authorities to make it possible for U.S. telecommunications firms to be active and forward-leaning in bringing information to the Cuban people over the Internet. Uh, there is a lot of complexity to this, and there are, again, issues of, of licensing and legalities involved, uh, but Ambassador Sepulveda is is off to a good start in, in, uh, in pushing that agenda forward. And the third is in the area of aviation. Uh, given there are currently 12 uh, licensed activities for which Americans can legally travel to Cuba, uh, but despite those restrictions, there is a lot of interest in going there. Uh, there's also a lot of interest on, on the part of Cubans to visit family members. And in order to meet that increased demand for, for transportation, where uh, our aviation people in my bureau are in active dialogue and they have, they've had one round of negotiation with Cuban counterparts, the objective of which is to set up regularly scheduled flights uh, under the current authorities. Thank you. My time's running out, but the other point I'd like to make as I finish here is that 
Uh, we, all of us as senators, I think, have agricultural sectors in our states, and it's terrifically important that we try to open up those markets and, and bring down the barriers and obstacles that have prevented our farmers from selling their goods to the 11 million people that are there. They're there. They eat. Uh, we need to open up those markets. Thank you, Chairman Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Udall. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses for being here today. Uh, uh, Secretary Crocker, the 2016 budget, the administration requested $1.54 a billion dollars for the entire contributions to international organizations account, which a little over $1.1 billion would fund U.S. contributions to the United Nations and its affiliated agencies. Of the amount designated for U.N. entities, about 630,000, excuse me, about 630 million would go to the U.S. assessed contribution to the U.N. regular budget. The U.N. General Assembly's current 2014-2015 session has adopted a total of 20 resolutions. Uh, singling out Israel for criticism, and only three resolutions on the rest of the world combined. Uh, given that record, uh, do you think Americans are getting their money's worth at the United Nations? Well, thank you, Senator, for raising that question, which I think is always an important one to talk about when we're looking at the overall credibility, effectiveness, efficiency, and legitimacy of the UN system. Um, fighting against efforts to delegitimize Israel and the undue structural bias um, that is placed on Israel across the UN system is one of my top priorities as IO Assistant Secretary and more broadly as one of the administration's top priorities. Um, we do this for many different reasons, and I think it's important to recognize that um, in over 75 multilateral fora over the past two years, we have intervened in one way or another on hundreds of occasions um, on Israel's behalf to fight against this bias um, that, you, that you spoke of. We do do this for a number of reasons, one, because Israel is our close friend and ally, but also, as I mentioned, because undue focus on any one particular country in the UN system threatens to undermine the credibility of the entire system, um, which, as you suggest, is an important thing for us to focus on given the amount of money that the U.S. taxpayer um, uh, contributes to that system every year. Um, we also do it to protect U.S. interests, and so in often what that means is fighting against um, or, or trying to, to stop resolutions that would impact or undermine our ability ultimately to get to a two-state solution, which remains the ultimate U.S. objective um, between, uh, in this, in this, on this issue. Um, and we also, very importantly, support Israel's own efforts to enhance its normalization across the U.N. system, and this can take many different forms. It can mean supporting the efforts of Israel to get Israeli employees in U.N jobs. Um, it can mean supporting the efforts of Israel to have leadership positions on, U on executive boards, for example, or to serve as the vice president of the UN General Assembly, which it did some years ago. Um, and, uh, and it can also mean that we, we fight, as we did recently last year in Geneva, to make sure that Israel has membership in regional blocs, um, such as the one in Geneva, that means that it can help as we coordinate on positions that we take, for example, at the Human Rights Council. Um, this work is not done, and it's never done. Uh, um, as, as your statistics rightfully point out. Um, but we slowly are making progress in some of these venues. Um, and the important thing to realize is that Israel tells us consistently how much they support our efforts on their behalf across the multilateral system, both to protect and defend their interests and also to support their own efforts to normalize their relationships in the multilateral system. And we work hand in hand and very closely with Israelis on all of these efforts. I just want to make something clear in your in your answer. You said uh, you used the word bias, and uh, is it then your your position that there is a bias against Israel at the United Nations? 
In certain uh, parts of the United Nations system, we have seen some evidence of that bias in the sense that there are an undue number of resolutions, for example, or at the Human Rights Council that there is a standing agenda item on Israel, and it is the only country that has a standing agenda item. Are there other areas where there is a bias against Israel at the United Nations? In the UN General Assembly, which is the one that you mentioned, um, again, we see some undue focus on Israel, given the number of resolutions that are, um, are anti-Israel resolutions as opposed to the number of resolutions on other countries. But we are working consistently to fight against that. We have allies in that effort. And, in, uh, and I think you know, it's important to note that in the Human Rights Council, since the United States joined that council in 2009, we have seen a real reduction in the amount of time that the council focuses on Israel. And this is just a, an example of the importance of U.S. leadership across the board in the U.N. system, because we are able to take that fight where we need to take it, um, and we are seeing some progress as a result of our actions. And again, the Israelis tell us consistently how much they appreciate those efforts, both on the, on the question of whether there is bias or exaggerated focus on Israel in the form of resolutions, for example, or in the case when they are themselves trying to run resolutions in the U.N. General Assembly and the U.S. supports them and co-sponsors those resolutions. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your time. Uh, th thank you very much. Uh, uh, Secretary uh, Garber, I want to talk a little bit about uh, international climate change negotiations. Uh, August 26th of last year, the New York Times had a story entitled, Obama Pursuing Climate Accord in Lieu of Treaty. The article says the Obama administration is working to forge a sweeping international climate change agreement to compel nations to cut their planet warming fossil fuel emissions, but without ratification from Congress. It also talks about the administration working on a, quote, politically binding deal to cut emissions rather than a legally binding treaty that would require approval by two-thirds of the Senate. So, so will any agreement be legally binding on the United States? Thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. It's at an early stage in the international negotiation process right now, and everything is on the table. Um, I understand that staff from the Office of the Special Envoy on Climate Change, as well as some staff from my own bureau from the Office of Global Change, have been coming up and consulting pretty regularly in recent weeks with congressional staff on the progress of the negotiations. Um, it, I can tell you that it is our intention to continue to do so as the negotiations proceed and we get closer to the final agreement in Paris. So I guess the question is, does the administration plan to pursue a course to try to make it legally binding in the United States with, by, bypa by bypassing Congress at the same time? Our objective for Paris is to have a significant um, agreement, a meaningful agreement with um, robust and transparent emissions reduction targets that include all countries, including the major emerging economies. At this point, the question of, the, of what that agreement would look like at the end is still an open question because we're at initial stages of the negotiations and everything is still on the table. So no decision has been made about whether the administration plans to submit the agreement uh, from Paris to the Senate for advice and consent? It's at a very early stage in the negotiations. Okay. In, um, in March of, uh, of last year, uh, Jeff Kutner, who's president of the George C. Marshall Institute, released a recent study called uh, Climate of Insecurity. Uh, and I asked that that study be entered into the record without objection. It's rather, the, the report says, efforts to link climate change to the deterioration of U.S. national security rely on improbable scenarios, imprecise and speculative methods, and scant empirical support goes on to say, 
Accepting the connection can lead to the dangerous expansion of U.S. security concerns, inappropriately applied resources, and diversion of attention from more effective responses to known environmental problems. Uh, he also provides information to show that factors other than the environment are much more significant in explaining the onset of conflict. A uh, recent survey cited in the report found that the primary causes of, of intrastate conflict and civil war are political, not environmental. So if the, if the cause of war is political, not environmental, as, as stated in this report, uh, then isn't it possible that the U.S. could be spending millions of dollars on foreign climate change assistance that will not actually prevent instability? In response to the question from the ranking member earlier, Mr. Chairman, um, I noted in my response that uh, climate insecurity is something that acts as a stressor where other factors can be going on as, as well. Um, in terms of our climate assistance, we tend to focus it on three areas, clean energy sustainable, and sustainable landscapes um, are, are two out of those three. So stressors could also be expensive energy. And sometimes the focus I see of the administration on clean energy as opposed to affordable energy. And if you talk to Bill Gates and say what's important in so much of the work that he's done in, in other countries uh, has been aimed at affordable energy. He said that a, a country grows when uh, energy for transportation fuel and for electricity are affordable. It would just seem to me that uh, sacrificing affordability for the, the focus of the administration, the fixation, if you will, on clean energy could be an, un, an unnecessary stressor, and perhaps the administration is focused on the wrong stressors in terms of global uh, instability. In my bureau, we um, have the pleasure of working on over 50 bilateral science and technology dialogues with other countries. And one of the themes that comes up time and time again from varying countries is their interest in sort of the leading U.S. technological edge and our knowledge base on clean energy systems. This is something we see um, coming back uh, many, many times. So from our perspective in OES, this is one of the key areas that we're working on as well, is to try and get the best science together, create economic opportunities, because the U.S. is a leader in clean energy technologies, and being able to create those economic opportunities, as well as bring down the affordability of these types of of technologies. Because obviously this is a tight budget environment. We have this huge debt. Uh, there are many competing priorities across the globe. The, the President's budget request includes $1.29 billion for the Global Climate uh, Change Initiative. Uh, this is a 55 percent increase in funding from fiscal year 2014. So for fiscal year 2016, the Bureau has requested uh, an increase of another $330 million in economic support funds to go toward a brand new green climate fund. Uh, given the increasing need for humanitarian assistance, democracy promotion, embassy security measures, countering global terrorist threats, I'm wondering why the administration is requesting such a, a large increase for global climate change, where I think most people would think this could be better spent on the issues of humanitarian assistance, democracy protection, embassy security, and countering global terrorist threats. The focus of our $3 billion request for the Green Climate Fund is to help reduce climate pollution and strengthen resilience with a particular focus on developing countries and the most vulnerable. Um, 
In 2008, uh, the Bush administration provided $2 billion to the climate investment funds, and we see the Green Climate Fund as an opportunity to take this type of climate support and bring it forward to the, to the even more robust and resilient. It has four different areas in which it's significantly different from the existing climate investment funds. One, from the get-go, it's going to have a dedicated private sector facility because we really believe the private sector has to be part of that solution, uh, working with it going forward. Second, it has a focus, as I stated before, on the most vulnerable. Third, it is going to have a much broader donor base, which is something that we think is really important because we believe that everybody has to be part of the solution. There can't be countries that are going to be sitting on the outside. And the third, a fourth, and, and also incredibly important, is that it has much better safeguards, and we're going to make sure that it's transparent and that there's accountability in how those monies are going to be used. Senator Udall, do you have additional questions? Yes. Thank, thank you. Uh, Chairman Barrasso, and I ask one question on climate change, and I want to come back to that. And it seems to me that this problem is only going to be solved if all of the countries in the world are working together. That's the first point. And so the fact that we're going to Paris and trying to work with countries around the world I think is very important because if we just sit here isolated, we're not going to be able to do that, and so I urge you to try to work with all the other countries around the world and work as President Obama has with China, where both countries, the two biggest emitters, set specific targets of where they're going. And my understanding is that as a result of that discussion and the targets that are out there and how we're trying to move, um, we're, we're seeing a dramatic um, a change in attitude in terms of countries around the world going into Paris. Is that, is that uh, happened? Do you sense that, uh, um, Assistant Secretary Garber, from the work that you're seeing being done on the ground? I think absolutely. The agreement between President Obama and President Xi um, and the announcement from last November was truly a game changer. And we're seeing a higher level of ambition coming. For, coming. We've seen announcements from over 60% of global uh, countries that represents over 60% of global emissions as we move toward Paris since that announcement. So again, this is a sign of how we are trying to work with many other countries to get more ambitious targets so we can reach a meaningful agreement that will be applicable to all, including the major emerging economies. And, and we're, when it comes to, to doing the things like you, you mentioned, the two, two of the three areas you're focusing on, clean energy, sustainable landscapes, is it not in our national interest, interest to decrease foreign pollution, um, especially pollution that is impacting Americans negatively right now? It seems to me we're not just working uh, in, on the international basis. We're trying to do things that will change uh, the situation here at home. As we know, uh, many of the measurements uh, on our coasts where Los Angeles, they can look at where the pollution comes from my understanding, about a third of that pollution is coming from across the seas. And so we're all interconnected in this. We just need to make sure that we're all working together to try to be a part of the solution. And, and the question, I guess, is on that impact here in America. 
Absolutely. Uh, climate change is a global challenge that requires a global solution, and we believe in forging a meaningful agreement. We're actually helping to improve um, the qual quality of life in the environment here at home. Uh, the World Health Organization recently came out with statistics that uh, one out of eight deaths worldwide is due to air pollution and related factors. So again, this is something that we believe will help to improve that situation for American citizens as well. Yeah. And Ambassador uh, Crocker, I want to come back to the question about Israel because I think it, it drives home a point uh, in terms of our engagement with the UN. You mentioned that um, there was a, before the Human Rights Council, there was another commission. We weren't involved at all, but as you know, recently we've been very involved in this Human Rights Council. And as you've testified, there's been less focus in terms of being anti-Israel. And to me, that highlights uh, the point that if we get engaged, uh, then other countries are willing to see us working through the process at the UN and, and allowing us then to move forward. Would you agree with that? And then are there other examples of where direct engagement, whether it's in the reform area or other areas that, and, and uh, um, Ambassador Coleman, you may want to comment on this also. Well, well, thank you for coming back to that question because I think it's a very important point to underscore um, that we see time and again and we hear time and again from other countries how much they want U.S. leadership and strong engagement um, at the full range of international organizations in which we participate. The Human Rights Council is an example of where U.S. leadership not only has meant um, over the course of years since we've been a member of that council a decrease in focus on Israel, but also importantly an increase in the council's focus on those things that it should be focused on, namely shining a spotlight on the world's worst human rights, rights abusers. And since the U.S. has taken a leadership role and engaged strongly in the work of the Council, we have worked across regional groupings and with other countries to turn the Council's attention to some of those worst abusers, from Iran and the DPRK to Sudan, uh, to Syria, uh, to Belarus, Eritrea, Sri Lanka. And we've also worked with the Council to help other countries build their own capacities for human rights protections, um, and we're seeing that in Somalia and in Haiti and in Lebanon, for example. Um, we have used the Council effectively to elevate international attention on, um, on people around the world who were otherwise underrepresented, including uh, persons with disabilities and LGBT persons. We've used it to advance U.S. interests on human rights, including the protections um, of the rights of expression and assembly um, and association. And um, we have been able to do all of this despite the fact that there are some bad human rights uh, abusers on the Council itself, which is something we also work against. But the important point is that U.S. leadership on the Council enables us nonetheless to drive the Council's agenda and to turn its focus on, uh, to those things that it should be focused on. Um, I would cite what we're doing right now on the efforts on peacekeeping reform as another area where um, we hear time and again and we see for ourselves that the U.S. being at the table as a full, uh, as a full member of the United Nations paying our dues in full and on time and having the kind of standing that we do enables us to speak with a strong voice, whether it's looking at uh, mandate renewal questions, looking at new missions that we're agreeing on in the Security Council, or encouraging other countries to either come back into peacekeeping when they've been out for some years or to enter UN peacekeeping for the first time. Ambassador Coleman, just 30 seconds or so. Sure. I mean, I would just underscore what Assistant Secretary Crocker has already said. I think that the uh, many of the countries who share our values and are interested in promoting the reform agenda that we feel is so important at the UN, they really look to us for leadership. I 
uh, have had personal experience of that in, uh, in many of the negotiations in the Fifth Committee. It's really a number of countries who, who rely on the United States as the largest financial contributor at the UN to use its weight and to use its influence to promote that very important reform agenda across a whole range of different issues, whether it's uh, Israeli inclusion or whether it's peacekeeping reform, as Assistant Secretary Crocker just mentioned, or budget discipline on all of these issues, uh, countries look to the United States for leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Brock. Th thank you, Senator Udall. Senator Markey. Thank you very much. Um, Secretary Gaber, um, you have responsibility, a significant responsibility with carrying out a range of tasks in the White House. February 2015 uh, issued implementation plan for the National Strategy for Combating Wildlife Trafficking. Could you discuss um, your efforts, how they address the international conservation goals and anticipated challenges that uh, oceans, environment, and uh, science uh, may face in responding to the national call to combat uh, wildlife trafficking? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. Uh, wildlife trafficking is a growing, a growing crisis. Not only are there, extinct, are there species that are facing extinction, but we have seen a trend for this to this uh, wildlife trafficking to become more of a security issue uh, with the internet transnational criminal gangs as well as some terrorist groups taking advantage of what is truly a low risk, high reward enterprise. The national strategy has really elevated the approach of the US government on this issue and we are actually meeting quite regularly. We've come out, as you pointed out, um, in February with a robust implementation plan. Um, we are focusing it on three areas, strengthening law enforcement at home and abroad, reducing demand, as well as uh, increasing and strengthening international commitment and cooperation. We are focused very much on some of the high demand countries, such as China, in our international diplomacy, as well as trying to get this as an issue on the agenda in forests such as APEC and ASEAN. We are at an interagency level, we meet on a regular basis, and in fact, we're having a meeting of our task force tomorrow where we will be addressing um, many of these different approaches and what we can do to help solve this global crisis. Okay. Talk a little bit about deforestation, talk about the Amazon, talk about uh, what uh, we can do to uh, help to uh, create uh, sustainable landscape programs. How, will, how would that affect deforestation work? Well, de deforestation is a focus of a lot of the effort of my bureau and some of our assistance programs. The drivers of Amazon deforestation are genuinely complicated, but agriculture is one of the main factors behind that. Secondly, uh, infrastructure development is another key element and issue there. We are focusing our programs um, on, on better governance in those areas, trying to get at the heart of those issues. In addition, uh, we're trying to create, such as our activities with Peru, better tracking systems, systems and helping build capabilities in those that are forcing these particular issues. Thank you. Um, Secretary Gabber, I know that uh, our climate negotiations are in great hands. I know Todd Stern's doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Secretary Kerry's doing a great job. Um, I love the progress that we've made with uh, China and with other countries beginning to step up to the plate to play their uh, role in making sure that every country is making a commitment. And I'm very optimistic about what can happen, uh, what we can unleash uh, as a future. Uh, and uh, I just actually left a meeting with 10 MIT scientists who are very bullish on solar. 
and the role that it can play in the years ahead in dealing with this uh, issue. And uh, Thank you. Uh, we just have to put the right incentives uh, on the books and then we can just watch this whole area explode. So I think it's in good hands. So I feel good about climate and the negotiations. So I'm gonna move on to something else that I'm concerned about, which is seafood fraud uh, and illegal fishing, uh, which is bad for everyone from fishermen to seafood uh, lovers. And it threatens the health of the ocean and the bottom lines of fishermen in Massachusetts on, and on all of America's coast. And I was glad to work with my colleagues on this committee last year to move the Port State Agreement uh, that will help combat illegal fishing and the economic and environmental harm it causes. And I look forward to working with the Commerce Committee to move additional legislation to combat illegal fishing in this Congress. Uh, but I'm happy that through Secretary Kerry's leadership on ocean issues, the State Department is already making strides to level the playing field for our domestic fishing industry, which operates under some of the toughest conservation requirements in the world. I know the final recommendations, Ms. Garber, of the Presidential Task Force on Combating Illegal, Unreported, and Unregulated Fishing and Seafood Fraud were just released in March, but could you tell us where you've seen positive results already or anticipating seeing those results in the future? Thank you for that question, Senator. Uh, our sense is that the Secretary's Our Ocean Conference and the following Our Ocean Action Plan has really changed the global dialogue on oceans issues. We're very excited by the enthusiasm that we're finding all over the world, a newfound enthusiasm to tackle these issues. We're pressing for ratification of the Poor State Measures Agreement in many different countries. As you noted, uh, we just came out recently with the recommendations of the Presidential Task Force that was set up during the Our Ocean Conference. I hope, um, as a senator from Massachusetts, you had the opportunity to see the um, op-ed that I, that myself and Deputy Assistant Secretary Russell Smith put in there on the date that the uh, Task Force recommendations were released, um, emphasizing how important we think it is to put in place and explaining to the general public why it's so important to have uh, seafood traceability so we don't, so consumers know what they're eating in the United States, we know what's on our plate and that we don't have illegal seafood entering the commercial chain, and also emphasizing the international efforts that we're going to be making overseas. Because we believe that it's very difficult for us to show international leadership on this issue if we're not addressing some of our weaknesses here at home as well. So we're very enthusiastic about where this is going. I was in Colombia last week at an environmental um, working group meeting as part of our high level a policy dialogue with Columba, Columbia, and all my counterpart wanted to talk about was the Our Ocean Action Agenda. No, that's great, because uh, if you're a fisherman in Gloucester or New Bedford, you got big problems if we don't begin to crack down on illegal uh, fishing, which is absolutely gonna be devastating to us, and so I'm glad that you're leading um, that effort. I think it's absolutely critically important, and we have to do something, again, in your portfolio on climate change. There were Readings in the ocean off of Massachusetts in January, 21 degrees warmer than normal in January off of the ocean uh, in Massachusetts. So the cod need cold water. No? Lobster need cold water. So um, it's, it's having a fundamental impact upon huge industries. And, uh, and in fact, though, that cold air coming down from the Arctic kept hitting this very warm ocean. Uh, and to a large extent, that's what gave us 111 inches of snow that incredible you know, impact that uh, cold weather has when it hits uh, warm water. And, uh, uh, and I know that um, you are working on that and, uh, uh, and I appreciate 
you know, y'all being here. Uh, my colleagues from Wyoming and, um, uh, and um, New Mexico uh, are not as close to the ocean as I'm sure they would like to be, so these issues are central to us. But Mark Twain used to say that um, an expert is anyone who lives further than 500 miles from the problem. So if we got people here who can help us to solve those uh, issues. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much for your, um, for your indulgence. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate all of you being here today. Thank you for your service to our nation and for working to advance the American interest all across the globe. Um, at this time, we'll uh, take a minute to transition to the second panel uh, and ask that second panel uh, witnesses uh, to move to the table. Well, I want to welcome our second panel, distinguished witnesses to the committee. I appreciate your efforts to be with us today to provide valuable insights. I appreciate your patience and uh, by sitting attentively through the first uh, panel. Uh, joining us in the second panel is Mr. Uh, Brett Schaefer, the J. Kingham Senior Research Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us. And also uh, Mr. Reed Detcon, the Vice President for Energy and Climate Strategy at the United Nations Foundation. As I noted earlier, uh, your full statements will be included in the record in their entirety without and uh, with hearing no objection to that. I do ask that you try to summarize your statements in about uh, five minutes. And uh, uh, Mr. Schaefer. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall, and other members of the subcommittee. I would like to thank you for the opportunity to come and speak to you today about key issues facing the United States at the United Nations. In my opinion, it's in the interest of the United States to have an effective United Nations. To be useful, the UN must carry out its responsibilities competently and efficiently, it must operate in a transparent and accountable fashion, and it must hold itself and its employees and representatives to the highest standards of conduct. Unfortunately, the current organization falls short. Let me focus on a few key points from my testimony, which has a number of examples of uh, uh, suggestions of ways to address these problems. First, the current methodology for calculating the scale of assessments, the percentage of the budget assigned to individual countries, has over the years increasingly shifted costs of the organization away from the bulk of the membership onto a relative handful of high-income nations, particularly the United States. The differences are stark. The United States will be assessed approximately $3 billion this year based on the projected budgets for the regular and peacekeeping budgets, while 20 least assessed countries will be assessed less than $37,000 this year for both of those budgets. This is not just a few states that are underassessed in this manner. For the regular budget, the U.S. has assessed more than 176 other U.N. member states combined. For the peacekeeping budget, the U.S. has assessed more than 185 other U.N. member states combined. This year, over half the U.N. membership will be assessed less than $1 million each for their share of the regular and peacekeeping budgets. This reality helps explain why many member states are blasé about budget increases. The financial impact on them for individual budgetary decisions is relatively minor and in some cases insignificant, which undermines the incentives for them to fulfill their oversight role and seriously consider budgetary restraint. A long-term solution requires a more equitable distribution of the cost of the UN activities so that all member states have an incentive to watch the bottom line. Second, because the UN and its employees enjoy broad protections and immunities, the organization has an extremely heavy responsibility to self-scrutinize, self-police, self-correct, and punish wrongdoing. Unfortunately, the internal oversight in the organization has been lacking. A low point was the elimination of the incredibly effective procurement task force by the General Assembly in 2008. Worse, however, is the fact that the Office of Internal Oversight Services has not filled the gap. 
No major corruption cases have been completed by the, since the PTF was disbanded in, 19, in 2008. This deliberate neglect is abetted by some member states that dislike having their citizens subject to corruption investigations. The UN also seems to have an, an embedded hostility toward whistleblowers who can serve as a critical safety valve for reporting mismanagement and misconduct. As stated by nine prominent whistleblowers in a recent letter to the Secretary General, quote, retaliation against whistleblowers affects the entire UN system and goes largely unchecked at all levels, unquote. The fear of reporting wrongdoing undermines the effectiveness and integrity of the UN and must be shored up. Third, UN peacekeeping is being conducted on an unprecedented pace, scale, and ambition. These increasing demands have revealed ongoing serious flaws, including corruption in procurement and contracting, the potential for unintended tragedies such as the introduction of cholera to Haiti by UN peacekeepers, questions about the relevance and impact of longstanding operations, and based on recent reports of peacekeepers failing to respond when civilians were threatened, whether peacekeepers are actually prepared willing, and willing to protect civilians in hostile environments even when instructed to do so by Security Council resolutions. But the most horrible problem is the troubling frequency of peacekeepers, both civilian and military, preying on the very people that they are supposed to protect. <clears throat> Recent heroin reports of sexual exploitation and abuse underscore that this problem has not been resolved and more robust steps must be taken. Finally, the U.S. should take more proactive steps to increase the transparency and effectiveness of its own contributions to the U.N. system by reviving the annual reporting requirement on all U.S. contributions to the U.N. system conducted by M OMB, conducting periodic analyses on U.S. participation in the U.N. system to identify those most and least vital to U.S. interests, those providing most and least value for money, and using that analysis to inform decisions on membership and contributions, and increasing U.S. scrutiny of how U.S. dollars are spent in the U.N. system. In conclusion, I want to emphasize the critical role played by Congress on U.N. reform issues over the years through the use of financial carrots and sticks that, among other reforms, have led to the adoption of consensus-based budgeting in the 1980s, the establishment of the OIOS in 1994, and the adoption of maximum assessment of, re of the regular budget and encouraging conduct and personnel changes under the Helms-Biden Agreement. In my opinion, Congress can be a very effective ally in executive branch efforts to pressure the organization to adopt reforms and should be active in this area. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much. Mr. Dutchman. Um, Mr. Chairman, Senator Udall, thanks for the opportunity to testify today. It's an honor to appear before you to discuss the critical role of the United Nations as a venue for international engagement, especially with regard to global climate change. I'm Vice President for Energy and Climate Strategy at the UN Foundation here in Washington. And while my background and expertise are in energy and climate, I will also say a few words about the importance of strong and constructive U.S. engagement with the UN. The UN's most important role is to serve as a forum for the world's nations to address global challenges. The challenge of climate change is a textbook case of the UN's value to the international community. If you're confronted with a problem of global scale and significance, anyone would want to assemble the best experts from all over the world to assess it and propose possible responses. In fact, that describes exactly what the UN has done on climate change. For such problems, it is often said that if we didn't have a UN, we would have to invent it. A precedent for action was the Montreal Protocol, the highly successful international agreement to phase out the use of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs. As would later happen on climate change, countries came together under the auspices of the UN, first to understand an emerging threat to the global environment, 
then to conclude a framework agreement on how to address it, and finally to negotiate a plan of action. In 1988, 27 years ago, the UN, with the support of President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, created the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, to prepare scientific assessments on all aspects of the issue. The IPCC has reported five times since then, most recently last year, with increasingly definitive assessments endorsed by more than 190 member states. In 1992, the world agreed in Rio to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. President George H.W. Bush, for whom I served in the Department of Energy, signed the treaty on behalf of the United States, and it was approved by the Senate without dissent later that year. The countries that ratified the convention, again more than 190 in number, have grappled since then with how to move forward on this thorny topic. In December, in Paris, negotiators will meet again for the 21st time, and this year they seem ready to agree. No country likes to be told what to do, not the US or China or India. Instead, the agreement being forged in Paris will build on national commitments to action taken in each country's own self-interest. The U.S. position, for example, will reflect the decision we have made to double the fuel economy of our cars and light trucks, as well as new efforts to reduce carbon dioxide pollution from power plants. China will present its pledge to get 20% of its total energy consumption from zero emission sources by 2030. That will require China to deploy an astonishing 800 to 1,000 gigawatts of nuclear, wind, and solar energy almost as much as the entire generating capacity of the United States today. That's the equivalent of building a major power plant every week for the next 15 years. India will showcase its plans to deploy 100 gigawatts of solar in just seven years and another 75 gigawatts of wind, biomass, and hydro. These are remarkable numbers that are changing the global energy landscape. The agreement expected to be reached in Paris will involve action by nearly every country on Earth. It reflects a new global approach to climate action based on leadership by companies and by governors and mayors in addition to national governments. Investors are responding with more than $300 billion a year in capital investment in clean energy. These technologies are creating business opportunities and new jobs today. In support of this direction, the UN Secretary General launched an initiative called Sustainable Energy for All with an innovative new partnership model that brings together the public and private sectors on equal footing to support best policies and practices and mobilize private investment. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, the UN provides a vital platform for the world to come together and address global challenges, from climate change to peacekeeping to infectious disease. This includes the efforts by the UN and partners, including the UN Foundation, to vaccinate more than one billion children against polio. And today, as we speak, UN humanitarian agencies are helping to feed, shelter, and provide medical care to earthquake victims in Nepal. Efforts to reform the UN's budgetary management and accountability processes are critical to ensuring that the UN can continue this vital work in the most effective and efficient way possible. The US has been a strong supporter of these reforms. Some have suggested that we should attempt to force additional reforms by refusing to pay our financial obligations to the UN. We believe that the US is best positioned to advance a constructive reform agenda when we are fully engaged, which means in part paying our dues on time, in full, and without preconditions. Otherwise, we alienate our allies whose support we need and put UN activities that are directly in our national interest, such as peacekeeping, in financial jeopardy. 
Maintaining our good financial standing at the UN, in short, is critical to our ability to advance a constructive reform agenda. Thank you for your time and attention. Well, thank you very much for your uh, thoughtful testimony today. I'd like to start with a questioning, uh, and Mr. Schaefer, with regard to the UN budget, I, I appreciate you providing the subcommittee with several concrete proposals for responsible reforms at the United Nations. Uh, the United States is the largest financial contributor to the UN, and I'm concerned that the financial burden um, at the United Nations is not shared equally or in accordance with current economic realities. So could, could you explain why the United States is paying more to the UN budget than all of the other permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, combined? Well, the UN uh, bases its scale of assessments, which is the apportionment of the expenses of the organization, on, uh, well, first of all, it's based on their portion of the global GNI. Then a number of discounts are applied to certain countries based on uh, whether they're below income thresholds, whether they're considered least developing countries. Um, if they're below a certain income level, they also receive debt burden adjustments that ratchet their assessments down. And all of these deductions are then added to the, uh, the assessments of countries that don't receive those reductions. Um, the United States uh, has the largest share of the global economy among the uh, Security Council members, and if you add up uh, the other uh, countries there, uh, they do, in fact, have an assessment lower than the U.S. A part, a part of that is because China receives discounts for its regular budget assessment. If you take a look at China's share of the global uh, uh, economy, it should be between 10 and 11 percent of the U.N. regular budget. But it does receive low-income adjustments, it receives debt burden adjustments, and it receives um, uh, uh, those adjustments are applied to its regular budget, which reduces its overall regular budget assessment, which is the base for how the, secure, uh, the peacekeeping budget is reached. So if all things being equal, if you just ha added up the share of the global economies, um, China should be much higher, uh, Russia should be a little bit higher, and uh, Britain and France are about the right level, the United States should be lower. So, so what actions can Congress take to, to limit the growth in the UN budget and ensure a more equitable distribution of the costs, as you just outlined? Yeah. Well, right now we have a cap on the regular budget at 22 percent. That cap was implemented because the United States made it mandatory in return for payment of arrears that accrued during the 1990s as part of the Helms-Biden agreement. Um, the Helms-Biden agreement also had a re uh, requirement in there that the U.S. or that the UN put in place a hard cap of 25% on peacekeeping assessments for the United States as well. Uh, that cap was not put into place, but Ambassador Holbrook came to the UN, uh, came to the U.S. Senate and testified uh, that the new scale, or the, they had reached an agreement whereby the U.S. assessment would gradually be reduced over four or five years to 25%. Uh, that level was never reached. The U.S. assessment did decline slow, more slowly than anticipated or projected or promised by Ambassador Holbrook uh, and got below 26 percent um, in 2009. But it's increased every year uh, or over the, two pa the past two scales of assessments and now is uh, just about 28.4 percent. And it's going to reach, I think, higher than 29 percent with the next scale. And with the size of uh, peacekeeping budgets coming up, that has very important implications for the U.S. taxpayer. Well, because it does seem the administration's request for funding to meet the 2016 budget for the U.N. is, again, higher than the 25 percent. Uh, I think the request this time was a 28.36 percent. So 
with, without any changes, you, you do expect the amount owed by the United States at the UN to continue to increase. Absolutely. And the other UN member states have very little incentive to go along with changes to the scale of assessments to lower the U.S. assessment down because that would, of course, lead them to pay higher costs. The, reason, the way that the United States solved this problem before was withholding. Uh, Congress enacted and President Clinton signed into law the hard cap that led to arrears in the 1990s. Those arrears put pressure on the organization and led other member states to agree to, first of all, the 22% cap on regular budget, but also to agree to uh, other reforms, including the new formula for peacekeeping assessments uh, that Ambassador Holbrook presented to the U.S. Senate. I think that the United States should enforce that 25% cap and, and hold the uh, resulting arrears and, uh, uh, away from the organization with a promise to pay once they do indeed follow through and put a hard 25% cap for the United States and for any other member state. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Dechkan, on uh, November 3rd of this past year, you wrote a column entitled, Climate Action Means a Brighter Future. Uh, in, in the column, you said there's good reason for us to act, not only because of the dangers you said of disruptive climate change, you said, but because of a new climate economy uh, will be better for business. You, you go on to say it will improve our health, prosperity, and security, uh, as well as our environment. Uh, you know, I'd like to highlight a letter from Wyoming Governor Matt Mead to the EPA Administrator uh, Gina McCarthy. Of, uh, this was a letter last week, and I'm going to submit the governor's letter uh, to the record. In his letter, he highlights a recent study by the Center for Energy Economics and Public Policy at the University of Wyoming, and the study is called The Impact of the Coal Economy uh, on Wyoming. It was published this, this year in February, uh, and I'm going to put that study in the record, too. The study says, overall, Proposed carbon regulations result in a predicted decline in the state's combined coal and natural gas revenues of between 36 and 46 percent by the year 2030. It, it says Wyoming can expect to lose 7,000 jobs. So you know, my state is uh, finding that the president's uh, clean power plan as part of his uh, international climate change commitment is going to cost thousands of good paying jobs, dramatically slash state revenue that pays for college scholarships, schools, medical emergency services, uh, road safety programs, environmental protection programs, water quality services, veteran services, vital state services. So as a doctor, I can attest that unemployment caused by any plan uh, will lead to serious health impacts for unemployed husbands and mothers as well as children of the unemployed. I've actually written a report called Red Tape, uh, making Americans sick. I'm going to put that in the record. It talks about the high impacts of, uh, of, of individuals of long-term unemployment. So, so given all this information, is the deal the President's trying to commit America to in Paris at the, through the United Nations, is it, uh, without approval from Congress it seems, is this going to improve Wyoming's health, prosperity, and security, as well as our environment, as your column suggests? I certainly hope so, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the President, of course, has to represent the whole country, uh, and uh, there will be varying impacts by state. I was very impressed to read about the 3,000-megawatt wind project that you have uh, underway in Wyoming, and I think that uh, that's uh, an example of some of the new opportunities that are emerging. I think that uh, you, would, you would say that uh, AT&T is not the same company it was uh, in 1970. Uh, nor is IBM, but uh, newer technologies uh, that are more agile and deliver better outcomes uh, were able in a competitive marketplace uh, to uh, outcompete uh, the existing monopolies. 
And I think much the same is happening in the energy industry today. We're getting diversified energy supplies uh, that uh, in many cases are uh, outcompeting the existing ones. I think that most of the uh, decline in coal demand is due to natural gas substitution. And uh, so uh, I think that that is unrelated uh, to the clean power plan, which is prospective and will occur uh, in uh, several years as it is implemented at the state level. Uh, finally, I would say that the uh, EPA, as I understand it, has uh, made uh, very careful attempts at the state level uh, to uh, recognize existing realities uh, that uh, each state is in different circumstances uh, and needs to uh, be given a chance to respond appropriately. And so I think that the uh, impacts will vary a lot by state uh, in, in, in generally positive ways. Uh, thank you very much. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Barrasso. And, and one of the things, uh, Mr. Ditchin, you, you seem to be hitting on is that there are opportunities for our businesses also with regards to, say, the Sustainability for All initiative. Do you believe there are opportunities for U.S. businesses to engage with developing countries as they work to improve access to renewable energy and improve energy efficiency? How can the State Department work with these businesses to ensure that they have access to these emerging markets? Uh, and, you. and do you do that, too, at the UN Foundation? Yes, uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, the Sustainable Energy for All initiative is, as I noted in my testimony, a public-private partnership uh, working with, in particular, uh, financial leaders uh, to accelerate the deployment of clean energy technologies. It's ironic that in the United States, where we invented many of these technologies, we have the most competitive energy market in the world. And so it's the hardest place in the world for these new technologies to penetrate. Uh, in many other countries, uh, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I, I read uh, recently that the National Bank of Abu Dhabi uh, said that in that area, uh, solar is competitive with oil at $10 a barrel. So you have very different circumstances around the world. Uh, in, in areas that are not served by the electricity grid around the world, uh, poor people are paying the equivalent of 40 to 50 cents a kilowatt hour for the little electricity that they get from diesel-fired generator sets. It's been said that uh, by um, Harish Hyundai, who runs Selco Solar in India, that solar energy is a luxury for the rich and a bargain for the poor. So I think that we need to think about the particular context in which these technologies compete. Uh, I think that the uh, advent of available energy and clean energy in areas that now have none and have no prospect of economic development uh, are, is going to create uh, a virtuous cycle of economic growth and new markets for uh, consumer companies, including those in the United States. And, and you would expect that that uh, with, with uh, aggressive action by U.S. companies that they'll get a part of those markets in terms of creating jobs and growing jobs here and probably growing jobs other places in the world. Absolutely. Uh, certainly uh, you can see from the President's Power Africa initiative that General Electric was uh, one of the major partners there and uh, was uh, concluding, I think, some $7 billion worth of deals uh, to deliver electricity into East Africa. So I think that there are uh, opportunities large and small around the world. 
uh, and that uh, leading uh, the world in these technologies through our R&D uh, is going to uh, lead to uh, the, the sort of Silicon Valley of energy. Now, one, one of the things you mentioned in your testimony here was that it was the marketplace and the pricing uh, that was driving uh, utility companies to go to natural gas rather than coal. And really what you have is, is uh, with, as, as Senator Brasso and I both know, uh, additional production of national, natural gas. We, you really, in a way, have a glut on the market. It's driven down the price. And so these utility companies looking at this situation, they would, and with natural gas being cheaper, they'd much rather be burning natural gas than be burning coal. And so that's really the big transformation we're seeing take place, uh, rather than this being uh, the administration putting regulations in place, isn't it? Yes, sir. I think that's exactly right. Now, it's been, it's been uh, uh, mentioned several times with our previous panel and then with this panel about uh, the total UN budget being about $44 billion. Um, this amounts roughly to the same overall budget as Angola. Uh, in return, the UN manages uh, 16 peacekeeping missions with over 130,000 troops. That's the largest deployed military in the world. Uh, 11 political <coughs> excuse me, missions, including ones in Iraq and Afghanistan the largest humanitarian organization in the world, the World Food Program, plus vital organizations like UNICEF and WHO, um, who helped the UN vaccinate 60% of the world's children. You know, if they weren't doing that, those children weren't vaccinated, we'd have some big problems out there. Plus, there are dozens of specialized ag agencies which work closely with American businesses on issues like shipping, civil aviation, uh, and, of course, the U.N. offers a forum for all countries to gather and discuss the critical issues of the day. I think if you put the, those kinds of things that the U.N. is doing every day, put that in light, many would say the overall budget does not seem out of proportion. Uh, and I'm wondering, Mr. Dechan, you looking at it from me, it sounds like you specialize in energy and in climate. Um, would you agree with that in terms of some of the, the things that are out there? And what were the examples you would bring to the table in terms of energy and, and climate change? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I'm reminded uh, nobody likes to pay taxes either, uh, and they get imposed upon us, uh, but that's the price we pay to keep society safe and secure. Uh, I think that uh, trying, as, as Mr. Schaefer said, to find uh, appropriate uh, measures of fair share based on capacity to pay uh, is absolutely the right metric to pursue. Uh, uh, I would note that in the last round of negotiations, uh, the General Assembly raised the contribution rates of China and, and Russia by 50 percent or more, and we hope that that will continue in the same direction uh, to make it more equitable. Uh, but I, I would also note that there are two questions here. One is equity and one is cost. Uh, the equity issue uh, has to do with uh, capacity to pay, but uh, as uh, an absolute number on cost, uh, peacekeeping, for example, is a number that essentially is under our control because we have to vote for each of these missions as a uh, member of the Security Council. Uh, so no mission is going to go forward without U.S. approval. Um, and finally, I would note that uh, money is not the only measure of a country's contribution. 
the U.S. provides roughly 100 military experts, troops, and police to UN peacekeeping. Bangladesh, the leading country, contributes 9,500 uh, individuals. Others among the top countries contributing troops are Rwanda, Nepal, Senegal, and Ghana. Now these are countries that don't have the capacity to pay large amounts of money, but they are sharing their, uh, the, the blood of their children uh, to protect people around the world, and I think they should be honored as well. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Senator uh, Udall. Uh, uh, Mr. Schaefer, I want to just follow up on this line of questioning regarding the UN peacekeepers, because currently the United States is paying about $2.4 billion in taxpayer funds to UN peacekeeping budgets, and we've just heard the number of personnel that may be from representing different countries, and, and the issues of uh, oversight and uh, accountability, responsibility, because there have been numerous reports describing the sexual exploitation and abuse by the UN peacekeepers uh, and civilian personnel participating in these UN peacekeeping missions. Uh, and, and I think we would all agree this is a very serious problem. So despite years of focus on this issue and the United States contributing you know, such a percentage, or 28% to the UN peacekeeping budget, um, really we seems to be unable to stop the criminal conduct of these troops. So, so what steps can we take to address the abuse and the misconduct of UN peacekeepers as well as preventing it from happening in the future? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, one point I would like to, uh, to make first is that the UN does good work in a number of different areas, but that doesn't mean that everything the UN does is equally valuable. Um, the Clinton administration did a review of UN organizations back in 1995, and it led them to actually withdraw from a UN organization called the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. Uh, because it wasn't providing any value of, that they could determine. Uh, I think similar evaluation should be done across the UN system on a periodic basis to evaluate and, and determine whether we should or should not continue to uh, participate and support it the way we have. Um, there's also parts of the UN regular budget, like the economic commissions, that together comprise about a half a billion dollars. These largely replicate um, the activities of the regional development banks, the country's own development plans, U.S and other countries' bilateral development programs, the WTO and other economic uh, bodies. Uh, they're largely redundant and don't provide anything really seriously of value, but yet they are very expensive in terms of the UN regular budget. So these are the types of things that need to be looked at in terms of uh, evaluating effectiveness and cost effectiveness within uh, the UN system and the US should be approaching to try and uh, to focus resources where they should be. Uh, in terms of uh, sexual exploitation and abuse, it's been absolutely horrendous what uh, these past two uh, reports have come out and revealed. Uh, the first one was a leaked report that was commissioned actually by the UN itself, by our experts, uh, and was uh, presented to the UN in 2013. And they found uh, not only that there was a culture of secrecy in the UN that prohibited reporting the sexual exploitation and abuse, they found that the UN itself is inaccurately reporting and tabulating these numbers. Uh, and therefore, the claims that the UN is making in terms of advancement on these issues uh, don't uh, stand up to scrutiny and have problems in and of themselves. Uh, the UN has been making claims for a number of years to have a zero tolerance policy on sexual exploitation and abuse by its peacekeepers and its civilian personnel. Unfortunately, this report also revealed that it's nearly impossible to sever civilian employees in the UN system um, when they do um, do these things, partially because the process for um, gathering evidence and other um, uh, 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 
matters necessary to make a case are so slow to appear in the UN system and are also not preserved appropriately. Those matters need to be addressed. Um, when troops, they're all only under the authority of their, uh, their militaries and their home country governments, which is appropriate as a military deployment. But they also need to be held to account. The UN should demand that those countries provide the UN with specific data as to what they're doing to process these investigations, how they're proceeding, what the eventual results are, and uh, to report back to the, uh, um, the person making the allegations and the victims in these cases what has actually happened. That is not occurring either. Um, troop contributing countries that do not cooperate with these measures uh, should be uh, con uh, constrained in their participation in UN peacekeeping operations or have their uh, compensation to the troops, uh, their per troop compensation, um, severely uh, cut back as a punishment for failing to comply with these things, which not only impugn the reputation of the organization, but harm an untold number of people around the world that are supposed to be protected by those, uh, those UN peacekeepers. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Barrasso. I, on this uh, issue of peacekeeping, I think it's important that we, we keep in mind uh, what we're getting there. And um, the current uh, peacekeeping budget is around $8.5 billion, and it sounds like a big number and is a big number. $8 billion uh, funds the life-saving work of more than 130,000 uniformed personnel spanning uh, 16 missions around the world. But to put it in context, that's less than the city of Chicago's annual budget. In some of these cases, if the UN wasn't there, it would cost the US much more. And, I, and I'm citing here the in, a GAO studies that, that uh, has looked at this and found UN missions were eight times cheaper than US forces acting alone. For a UN mission, the cost per peacekeeper per year is about $15,000. In 2014, each U.S. soldier in Afghanistan costs $2.1 million. Uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, observed that U.N. peacekeepers, and this is his quote, help, quote, help reduce the risks that major U.S. military interventions may be required to restore stability in a country or a region, end quote. So, so I think you have some of our major uh, military people weighing in and saying, uh, this is important work. Um, the, we need to be out there doing this with the UN. Obviously, we have many responsibilities to do with our, um, our, our military also. Uh, Mr. Dechen, do you have any comment on that? Well, I, I certainly agree, Senator, that it's a bargain for the United States. Uh, at the same time, I respect the chairman's uh, comments about uh, misbehavior by troops. Uh, that's extremely serious and it ought to be pursued vigorously and transparently. Uh, unfortunately, such misbehavior has, is, a, is a tale as old as time and has occurred under every flag and now even the UN's. Uh, I, I would recall that uh, not only do we have more than 100,000 peacekeepers in 16 missions around the world, but as of March, I believe this number is uh, 1,564 have given their lives uh, to keep the peace. So I think we have to uh, recognize uh, that a bad comes with good sometimes uh, and balance the two. Uh, but I think that the uh, contribution that these peacekeepers are making 
is, is, is remarkable and, and also, as you say, Senator, an economic bargain for the United States. And, and obviously, as Chairman Barrasso has made the point, it, it, and you've just made it too, uh, misbehavior should not be tolerated. Also, we should not have situations like in Haiti where uh, UN troops go in and, and uh, apparently are the cause, been pretty well documented, uh, of the cholera and the spreading of, of cholera, and there's no been real accountability there. So, I mean, the, the UN needs to be just as accountable as other uh, governments and organizations around the world, no doubt about that. Just a, a final question, because you mentioned, uh, Mr. Ditchin, about the IPCC conclusions on climate change, and I think one of the things that's important to emphasize, uh, you talked about 190 countries agreeing. Yes. The, the important point there is that um, these countries are working together on the IPCC, but they have scientists in their own country that are reviewing what is said by other scientists, and they're only signing on if their scientists look at the science and say, um, this is looking pretty solid and this, we believe in these conclusions. And it is pretty remarkable when you think that of all the disagreements we have around the world, that 190 countries would ag agree with the conclusions and where we are. Do you have any comment on that? Well, that's exactly right, Senator, and I would even make it stronger than that. The, the scientists participate, and again, in the category of bargains, more than 800 uh, scientists participated in this last round, and they were not compensated for that work. They do this as a contribution uh, to the world. Uh, they give their time freely to help assess the scientific evidence as best they can. Uh, the, um, and I've lost my train of thought. Well, the, the, your, your point, sir, again. The, the, about the IPCC and the, and the scientists. Yes, uh, the, what I wanted to say was that not only do the scientists participate, but these reports are approved by governments. Now, this is a really important point, because if there is an appropriate criticism of the IPCC process, in my judgment, it's that governments weaken the, the statements that the scientists want to make. Governments are unwilling to be as clear as the scientists are willing to be. And so, uh, if anything, the IPCC reports uh, represent a conservative reading of the evidence uh, and, as, as you say, Senator, have to be approved by uh, every country who participates. Chairman Barrasso, thank you. Very productive hearing, I thought. Well, thank, thank you, you very, very much, much. Uh, Senator Udall, for, for, for your uh, thorough preparation and, and uh, uh, questioning. I, I appreciate all the witnesses uh, for making the time to be here today. Uh, we thank each of you for sharing your thoughts and insights with our subcommittee. Uh, we're going to leave the record open until the close of business on Monday, May 11th. Uh, for any members of this committee who are not able to attend, they may have written questions for either a first or second panel. Uh, and uh, since our committee will be considering a potential State Department reauthorization bill, I ask that you quickly respond to any written questions from the members of the committee. Thank you very much, and the hearing is adjourned.